So if you're building your own cabin, if you're building your own solar systems and water systems and all that, if you're doing all this yourself, which is the least expensive way to go off grid, it's important to get into a mindset of becoming a lifelong learner. Welcome to the Off-Grid Outpost Podcast, where we discuss the journey to real liberty through self-sufficiency, counter-economics, non-aggression, and the agora. The Outpost represents the border between societal norm and the pioneer spirit. Every episode contains practical, philosophical, and technical information you can use to gain the freedom you deserve. Welcome, everybody, to the Off-Grid Outpost Podcast. Today is July 11th, and I am your host, Regina, along with Cyrus. We are going to be talking about the off-grid mind state, what it takes mentally to go off-grid. So quickly, I just want to make a correction from last week's episode. Uh, I mentioned that four people had died in the Chaz Chop uh, endeavor, but it was actually only two, and both were teenagers, so... Just a quick correction. Yeah. But there were six shootings but during that time what was frame. That? There were six shootings during that time frame. Just mm. two deaths, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought four had died, but it was two out of six. Mm-hmm. 33%. Yeah. Uh, but quickly, before we delve into our topic, I just wanted to mention that uh, Seattle is now planning a massive tax on the most richest companies in their town, in their city. So they want to impose a huge tax on Amazon, like a $200 million a year tax in order to clean up and support their city. So they're basically going to tax the crap out of the rich company, the rich companies, the richest companies, and then hand it down the line. Yeah. Well, they might as well call it the Amazon tax. I mean, if you look at the wording, I mean, they might as well just call it the Amazon tax because that's who they're mainly taxing. I think it's mostly directed towards Amazon, correct? Mm-hmm. And I mean, Amazon t- makes an ass ton of money, so, but is it fair to tax them of a quarter of a billion dollars because they're set up in Seattle? I don't think Amazon's going to do that. I think Amazon got filthy rich by avoiding situations like that. Right. P- uh businesses grow into really large businesses because they make really good decisions. And it's a bad decision to stay somewhere where they're just going to tax you and tax you and tax you. They're not, they're not going to stay. Exactly. I mean, I don't know if this, you know, I don't know if this tax will push them to leaving, but every state would love to have Amazon in their state providing thousands of jobs. Exactly. You know, Amazon doesn't have to stay there. I don't think they will, especially if they go through with the tax. They just voted it in, so it sounds like they're going through with it. Um, mm-hmm. But they can always renege. Yeah, they tried but, that a couple of years ago. They had another tax that wasn't nearly as large as this one. And uh, so many people complained about it and said that they were going to leave, that they just uh, they just repealed it. Like it never even went into effect, if, I'm, if, I, if I remember right. Yep, I kind of heard about that one. Yeah, they've lost their mind up there in Seattle. I think they've lost their mind, and I don't know what kind of blueprint they're going for. If they're going for some sort of 
communist utopian setting, but to me it's turned into a very bizarre dystopia. And each thing that happens is adding just another layer, another reason for these huge corporations to get the hell out of there. So yeah, they're kind of destroying their city endemically. I agree. And that uh, there's a councilwoman there. She was, I just kind of skimmed over this part of the article, but she was talking about that tax and she was obviously a proponent of it. One of the people that voted for it. And uh, I can't remember the words she used exactly, but it was socialist Marxism. The words coming out of her hmm. mouth were Marxism. And it's just, wow. yeah. And she just, and it's strange that that's just out in the open like it is. I mean, there have always been people who believed Marxist ideology was the answer, but they were always kind of in the shadows. And it now, in the last, I don't know, five years, it just seems like a lot of people just come out and talk like Marxism is just it's our only answer it's it's our salvation and i'm thinking jeez yeah. it, it is having a revival and communism socialism marxism has been proven over and over and over again that it doesn't work throughout history yeah it's almost like so why would this time be any different it's almost like they've stopped teaching history and so this younger, it's being younger forgotten generation. very quickly, isn't it? I mean, I don't know what modern history books even read like, you know, since I haven't been in school for a long time. But I couldn't imagine there being much representation of accuracy in these books. And it might be, too, that I, I, when I've had conversations with, uh, you know, people who claim communism as a viable uh, structure, for example... And I say, you know, communism hasn't ever really worked. Why Why are you talking about communism? There's too many examples of the failure. And their answer is always somewhere along the lines of, well, it's never been done right. You know, mm -hmm. like, like my version of communism would work. Those other people yeah. that tried it, they, they weren't doing it right. Which is just <laughs> a strange position, I think. But, you know. People think strange things. I'm sure people think that I think strange things, so that's okay. Well, people are typically righteous, you know. Yeah. They're righteous in their their ideologies. and Clearly, it's not working very well in Seattle. So <laughs> Seattle's kind of this unfolding saga. Yeah. You know, it's like something crazy is always coming out of there. So it'll be interesting to kind of keep up on these Seattle story. Yeah. Yeah, we might have a little blip of Seattle in every episode. Who knows? Yeah, it seems to be that way. So moving into our topic, the off-grid mindset yeah. uh, is interesting. And I don't think people really consider that aspect too often. But I think it's really one of the most important components that you need to consider before you actually attempt to transition to an off-grid lifestyle yeah for sure it's extremely important and it well i can only i can really only speak to that side of it from my perspective which mm -hmm. is um you know we went off grid uh what they call the pioneer style like we bought raw mm -hmm. land we moved on to it and we built up what we had from there that's a much it's much more of a struggle to do it that way than if you have plenty of money and you can buy an off-grid homestead and then move on to it, 
Well, you don't, you're not going to need the same kind of mindset as what is needed to do what my wife and I did. So I can really only speak to it from my perspective. So, which is like I described. And I think, you know, there's a, there's, there's a place on the spectrum everywhere in between those two examples. So you just got to think about it yourself and where you are. Well, like you said, there's a, you either, you know, bootstrap it and you buy a piece of property and you rough it out Mm -hmm. or you have a bunch of money and you're able to invest in all the niceties and luxuries uh, firsthand, which I think most people shoot for that. But the reality is probably the other way. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, uh, I think most people would probably go somewhere in between too. You know, if you, yeah, most people are going to buy a piece of land that either already has a structure on it or that they can move a structure onto it, which is probably what I would suggest to people if they want to go off grid, Mm -hmm. you know, moving onto a piece of property and starting from scratch. And and it's, it's pretty rough. It's pretty, it's pretty rough. And, um, so you, you started off, uh, moving onto this property. So how big is your property? We have 10 acres. 10 acres. Okay. Mm-hmm. And do you mind like saying where you're located, just the state you're in? Yeah, we're in the Ozarks in Arkansas. So you're on 10 acres in the Ozarks in Arkansas and you buy this property and you bought it outright, I'm assuming? Well, we we made an agreement with the owner. Um, mm-hmm. He was selling it as hunting land and um, he was having a hard time selling it. And we made an agreement to give him so much money down and that I told him I would have it paid off in two years, which I did. Awesome. Or three years. Now I don't remember. It's been, it's been almost seven years ago. It was either two or three years that we paid it off and he didn't charge us any interest. Um, so it was a really good deal. He was happy. We were happy. You made a personal deal instead of going through the banking system and the interest and all that BS, you're able to find a personal seller and set up a personal deal. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is what I would suggest for anybody going through a bank. You know, if it's your last option, okay, but it's the worst option. It is the worst option. I agree. And some people have to do it that way and I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying if you can do it another way, do it another way. Yeah, I agree. So I'm like envisioning you like pulling up to this uh, land with your wife and there's literally nothing on it. Was there at least like a hunting cabin or anything? No, it's just raw land. It's just the woods. Wow. Like thick. So what did you do? Like what was your first action that you took on this property? Well, we loaded up a truck and a trailer. We sold all of our other stuff. We loaded up what we could on a truck and a trailer. I think... Actually, two trucks and two trailers, because I had a friend, the first trip out here, a friend came with me with a load of stuff. And so the first thing I did was I had pallets that I put on the ground, and I just stacked all of our stuff on pallets and tarped it, because there was no building to put things in. And then we we pitched a tent, and we just started camping, basically. Heck yeah. That's yeah. awesome. And we did. I love that. To me, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was pretty awesome that, you know, we didn't plan it out really great. Um, 
we we did that on November nineteenth, just before winter hit pretty hard. Oh wow! And uh, oh wow, that wasn't the smartest thing to do, but that's what we did. And we lived in that tent for so then, huh? So then, how did you you lived in the tent for how long? About a, it was about two weeks, and then I okay. And during that two weeks, I was building a shed, and. Mm. That shed was seven foot by nine foot. My wife called it the wooden tent because it just wasn't any bigger than our tent. Oh my goodness. And uh, we oh lived in goodness. that. Lived in that for two years while I built the cabin. Wow. Yeah, that takes a, a massive uh, a state of mind <laughs> to, to change from being completely on grid to just saying, screw it, we're going off grid, and then to live in this shack. Yeah. For two years. But then you're building the cabin progressively. So that right. seeing that progress, I'm sure, helped. Yeah. So then that first winter must have been it was pretty brutal. brutal, I could only imagine. <laughs> yeah, it was. Wow. It was pretty tough. Um, when we built the shed, when when we moved into it, we didn't, you know, there's no, no kitchen. There's no, there's nothing. And so... We had situations where every meal was being cooked on a campfire. So every morning when we wanted our coffee, I had to go out and build a campfire and we drank, you know, cowboy coffee. And it was, I don't know how long it was before we got one of those little propane Coleman camping stoves and that was in the house. And then we could, you know, make coffee in the house. But the really good thing about doing it that way is that starting out, everything is so rough that every tiny improvement just feels like it has made your life so much better. You know, there's relief. Yeah. Every little step is just, it just seems like a huge step. Like, like getting that little Coleman cook stove so that not every meal had to be cooked outside in a, on a fire. That was huge. Yeah. It was such a big deal, you know, and lots of little things like that just added up over time. To where we are now, where we're in a cabin, we've got running water, we've got solar power, and, you know, we're still not where we want to be, but. Interesting. Well, and that kind of brings up one topic I wanted to talk about, which is going from comfortable to uncomfortable. And in our society, we have a really glorified comfort. Yeah. To the point of being complacent. So, I mean, everywhere you look, it's just constant comfort. You see all these commercials for super soft beds and Mm -hmm. recliners and blankets and pillows and, you know, fast food and comfort food. And we have become creatures of comfort for the sheer fact that it's a a survival technique. You know, homeostasis Mm -hmm. is how you survive. But since we have come so far from having really to survive in the most rawest of terms we have just clung on to wanting to always be comfortable and we've traded comfort uh, for risk taking yeah there is something to be said for discomfort that improves your life I think Mm -hmm. Um, I there's a book by Marcus Aurelius and it was more like a diary. It was called uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Mm-hmm. 
an old uh, philosopher, one of the, I don't know, Caesars, you'd call him. Anyway, I won't go into it, but he's kind of like uh, one of the main teachers of Stoicism, and he would intentionally make himself uncomfortable so that he could become accustomed to discomfort. Hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of freedom in that, in knowing that you can handle a lot of discomfort. And I think the uh, the Buddhists do that as well. Yeah. Like, they're not allowed to have soft beds or pillows. They sleep on hard beds. and Oh, yeah. They, yep. They really deprive themselves of the comforts of humanity and what they eat, how they sit, how they sleep. That's a big uh, a Buddhist deal. Yeah. Well, so if, you, if you're going to go off-grid in the same way that we did, you've just got to prepare yourself for discomfort and be okay with it and just move through it like um almost like not even judging it like don't judge the discomfort as something that's bad and just move yeah. through it as an experience because we all have um pain is really just uh directly it's directly related to our judgment of a situation and not just emotional yes. pain. When we experience emotional pain, we it's because we've judged something to be good or bad. We had an expectation that didn't get met and that creates emotional pain. But physical pain is the same is the same kind of way. Your frame of mind dictates what that pain is like. Like for example, a bodybuilder who is tearing down his muscles intentionally loves that feeling. Yeah, that's true. But it's painful. You know, it's physically, it, it is a physically painful experience, but the, it's it's like an adrenaline rush for that person or for someone who likes long distance running. That's a, that's a brutal sport, but people love Ooh, to do it, yeah. you know? Well, and we've become accustomed to be pain averse. Yeah, yeah. In search of comfort and homeostasis and satisfaction. To the point where it's become detrimental, I think, to mankind. Because we just take less risk, you know? Yeah, in a lot yeah. of ways that's true. And so I, I was hmm. thinking I would just kind of go over a couple of the things that I think are really important if you're going to go off-grid in the kind of way that we did. And mm -hmm. that includes, you know, you're, you're doing everything yourself. So if you're building your own cabin, if you're building your own solar systems and water systems and all that, if you're doing all this yourself, uh, which is the least expensive way to go off grid, you know, it's, Im Definitely. it's important to get into a mindset of becoming a lifelong learner because you're always going to yes. have to learn new things in this kind of, in this living, you know, if you're, if you're chasing a dream of self-sufficiency and self-reliance, you are going to have to learn new skills, period. And so yes, to be in definitely. that state of mind is really important. Like instead of saying, you know, I can't do this. Well, that's just, you, you just shouldn't say I can't do this. You should just say, I don't know how to do this yet. And then you should learn how to do it. Well, you have to be up for the challenge. Right. You know, yeah. which is the, the taking of the risk. And I'm just personally coming off of being a pipeliner for three years. I worked in the oil and gas industry on the pipeline, boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. And when I first started, it was a very intimidating experience 
back, you know, a few years ago, there was very few women, and there still are very few women on the line. But back then, I was literally the only one. Yeah. And you get out there, and you're surrounded by dust and heavy equipment, and, you know, of course, the pipe itself, and you're surrounded by a bunch of dudes you don't know. And a lot of them, you know, were Mexican, so they weren't speaking English to me. And I just kind of wanted to tuck my tail and run. I'm like, there is no way I can do this. There is no way. So I just had to rise up to the challenge. It was uncomfortable. It was a huge risk. Literally a risk to my own personal safety. Right. You know, because you've got dozers flying around. You've got hose flying around. You've got pipe and skids and mats flying around. I mean, it was really uh, an intense experience and I had to make a decision. I'm like, do I go back to my comfort zone or do I learn? And can I hang, you know, can I hang with this? Right. And I chose to learn and hang with it. It took probably six months for me to get into the groove. But once I did, like, I was, I become a pipeliner. <laughs> that right. was huge. I'm only five feet tall, you know? I'm like this five foot tall woman out there throwing skids and shackles and hooks with the rest of the dudes, you know? Right on. And I, th- I think that's where uh, joy comes from. Those kinds of experiences where you've, where you've met a challenge, where you've learned something new that you weren't sure you could l- learn how to do, you know, the, yeah. The chasing of a goal is is joyful, I think. It gives you a feeling of deep satisfaction and confidence that nothing else can give you. That's right. for sure. When you take that huge risk and you don't really know if you can do it in the beginning. And you actually doubt yourself more than believe in yourself. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and once you actually do it, whether it's skydiving or taking a job you don't think you're going to be able to hold, whatever it could be. Once you have gotten to the point of, wow, I've succeeded. Mm-hmm. There is nothing else in life that compares to it. No amount of money, right? no toy, no vacation. Nothing is going to compare to that extreme satisfaction. Right. And like for us, for example, that first winter was so tough. I mean, when we look back on it now, you look back on an experience like that and you just think there's, I can do anything like, you know, mm-hmm. whatever you want to throw at me, that, you could do anything. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, it gives you this amount of confidence to know that, man, I think I've been through the worst of it, you know, and I came out the other side. So what's left is easy. Well, how did you stay warm in that shack? Well, so the, um, the shed was seven foot by nine foot, and it's, that is not big enough to have. That's so tiny. Yeah, it is really small. And Holy moly. I mean, people have closets bigger than that, like a lot of people, not mm-hmm. like just really rich people. Like a lot of people have closets that are bigger than that. and That's like an average size closet, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so you got a twin Maybe size. Maybe a little bigger than average. You got a twin size bed, a chest of drawers, and a little countertop. And me and my wife and three dogs and a cat. And so it was crowded. There oh, was, my goodness. <laughs> right. So there was no space. But you for, all bundled up together, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. There was no space for 
a wood-fired stove or even a gas heater, really. there's You couldn't put a gas heater in there anywhere where you wouldn't be afraid it would catch something on fire. Like So anyway, I built a... Uh, I built a wood stove out of two 55-gallon drums, and uh, it, it'll be really hard to explain how it worked. Um, but anyway, it sat outside of the cabin, and then I had a six-inch pipe that went into the cabin where the heat f- came in. And mm. it was it was terribly inefficient. It didn't work very well. And through that winter... My phone alarm was set to go off every hour and 15 minutes because it was so inefficient. I had to get up every hour and 15 minutes to put wood in the fire and stoke it so that we didn't freeze to death. And wow, I I don't know how. Holy moly. I don't know how I got through that, you know, and then I don't know how you got through that when we for a whole winter for a a whole (laughs) winter. And it was the worst winter we've experienced since we've been here. That was the like not just because of the experience we were in, but it snowed and sleeted all the time. And in Arkansas, you don't usually have that. Arkansas is one of those mild winter states where you might get a stretch of five to ten days where it's below freezing, but most of the time it's not even below freezing. But that of particular course. winter... It's, I mean, it's always like that. No matter where you go, it's always, oh, this is the worst winter we've had in 50 years. Oh, this is the hottest summer we've had in 100 years. I mean, it just seems to be like that anymore yeah well it was you know on the other side of that too was that we didn't have we didn't show up on the land with three or four ricks of firewood and so that whole winter i was every day i had to split firewood like i could never get ahead of that of that game so every day i was going outside cutting firewood splitting it and um didn't have a log splitter so it's all by hand kind of stuff and that's tough yeah that's really tough you must have been exhausted you must have just lost a ton of weight i i did actually did you lose a bunch of weight that yeah i was really thin <laughs> when that summer arrived i was really thin wow but buff as well i mean there's no way you couldn't get buff chopping all that firewood oh yeah you know me i'm i'm all cut up it's nice yeah, you're kind of cut up. <laughs> Not gonna lie. The uh, wish I was a little more cut up. I'm definitely fit from the pipeline. Well, you just can't be that. Doing kind three years of pipelining. Yeah, you do that kind of work, and it's it's going to change your body. So you're going to become more fit. And that's that's like the good kind of buff because these guys that go to the gym, and not all of them, but you'll see them. You know, the guys that are more on the extreme side, and they create all this muscle. Kind of, they engineer this muscle. And when you compare a body like that to a body of a man who's been like chucking freaking hay bales for a living all day, right. I mean, the difference is night and day. You know, the natural yeah. toadness from actually doing work is really the most desirable body type, as opposed to someone who just pumps iron at the gym and strategically builds muscle groups and breaks them down. It's just not yeah. the same. My and wife the has said the same thing. Strength. Yeah. My wife has said that before, yeah. The level of strength, too. So if you ask a man who's been engineering his muscles in the gym to perform uh, side-by-side with a man who's built his uh, physique from actual real work, yeah, the person who has done the real work will beat that person every single time. Oh, yeah. Because he's built his 
muscles to perform like in real world tasks, whereas these other muscles are just engineered in a gym. So interesting. It's just kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but one thing I wanted to say, you know, that might be a good solution for people wanting to go off grid and buy the property and just plop down. Um, you could look into uh, an RV yeah. and you can get a used RV for relatively cheap. So you at least have like your basic comforts. Granted, you'll need to rig that RV up, you know, to be off grid, at least to a certain degree. But even if you didn't have power or running water, at least you would have the shelter and a soft bed and, right. you know, some creature comforts, right. surfaces and things. So, and that's what I do. We live in a, in an RV and we've lived in an RV for four years now, uh, working on the oil and gas pipeline. So just traveling around, pick up, mm-hmm, traveled all over America now, um, from Montana to Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, Texas, North Dakota, New Mexico, not New Mexico. Yes, New Mexico just kind of made this huge loop. We've done that loop probably three times now. And a job will last three to six months and we'll be in the middle of nowhere. I'm talking Oklahoma, middle of nowhere, even Pennsylvania. Yeah. And so we just, you know, we pull up our camper and we hope to find a, an RV park and many times they're bottom of the barrel RV park in some dumpy little town with no amenities, but that's just how you roll right. on the pipeline. So then you go from, you know, living in an RV to being on the line all day, 10, 12, 14 hour day. I mean, there was several months of times where we're working sunrise to sundown and there are, there is nothing. There is no amenity. I mean, we are out mm -hmm. there and there's no bathrooms. So there's like, you know, maybe you'll find a porta potty and it's usually blowed up, you know, <laughs> yeah, like right. every two miles there might be a porta potty if you're lucky. Yeah. Other than that, there's no running water, no electricity. You have your truck and you have the right of way and that's it. And you're just out in and the equipment. elements all day long, whatever the elements yep, might be where you are. Yep. And that's my job is... And my boyfriend's a heavy equipment operator, and I'm his swamper. So he operates equipment, what, whatever it may be, clearing right-of-way, putting back right-of-way, uh, digging ditch, lowering pipe, you know, whatever it may be at the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm the one out there making sure he doesn't back into anything, doesn't swing into anything, making sure, you know, if a truck needs to come by, you know, stopping mm -hmm. him, allowing the truck to come by. So literally, in the elements all day, every day, for what felt like an eternity, in the middle of Texas jungle or Oklahoma fields, North Dakota prairie. And uh, it was it was pretty extreme. It really strips your life down. Right. And I think you could agree with me. Yeah. You go out there, like in your situation, and all of your comforts and niceties and everything you thought was normal... And, and human, it, it gets stripped away to the only thing you're left with is basically your humanity. And there's a lot to be said uh, for, well, okay, for example, like our nights were spent reading. So like we would, 
get a book and I would read out loud and my wife would just sit there and listen. Like we would do that for hours, you know? Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. I love that. Or And my wife plays the guitar or she would just start picking and I'd just, you know, sit and listen. And But our nights were filled with just time, real time spent wow. with each other instead of how many people nowadays actually spend time with each other that's n- that's not both of us just sitting on the phone or just watching TV you know it's it, there's a different kind of quality of life and what's mm-hmm. what's funny is as we have gained more amenities in our life and gotten more things we've gotten further away from that you know, which is kind of, yeah. in a way, I don't like it. But then in another way, it's, uh, there are positive things to that, too. So, but that was the biggest thing about when we first moved out here, how we were really just connected with each other and our, our life was just super simple. Wow. And it was... That an, sounds beautiful and amazing. It was. Yeah, it really was. And, uh, you know, at the getting back to the mindset of it is we, we had to except that those discomforts and difficulties were just part of the everyday life of how we chose to live, you know, instead of looking at them like, this is so hard, you know, like I would complain more now. I now have a a hydraulic log splitter, right? If I had to split wood. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all, I'm, I'm a fancy redneck. Upgrade. Yeah. So, but I would complain now more if I had to do just a couple of days of splitting wood with an axe. And back then I was splitting wood with an axe every day through the winter, every day through the winter. Because it was survival. You were literally in survival mode. Literally. Yeah. And I don't even really remember thinking, man, this sucks. You know, I, through that whole process, I remember feeling this is so awesome. I'm living in the middle of the woods. My life is super simple. Uh, you know, those were the thoughts I was having. I wasn't, I, I wasn't having any complaints about it other than, you know, you're laying in bed and it's freaking cold. You're saying, golly, it is cold. But mm-hmm. I would complain more about... Oh, I know cold. Yeah. <laughs> I would complain more about doing that kind of stuff now than I did then, which seems weird, but... Well, and it just, it's funny because thinking of this last winter, and we actually worked through the winter in North Dakota pipelining, which was ridiculous. I bet. They should have shut the job down. I mean, once that snow flew, you know, the people in charge should have said, okay, we're going to resume in April. But they didn't. They decided to pipeline through the winter, and there was all sorts of troubles to be had. Um, But I just remember it was negative 10 out, negative 15 and we're putting pipe in the ground and the welders are out there welding along with the welder helpers and you know the operators had it a lot easier because they're in their you know their cozy equipment (laughs) with their heaters on but the laborers and the swampers we were all freezing our asses off we had freaking icicles coming off of our eyelashes oh my goodness it was extreme yeah. And I kind of got to the point where I just said, you know what, I'm I'm going to sit in the truck. And if you don't like it, you can just fire me because this is like a threat to my survival right now. Like I could literally, I could go into uh, hypothermia. Right. Like super easy right now. Because there's no amount of layers. There is no amount of layers that's going to keep negative 30 out of your freaking body. 
Oh, I can't imagine. I mean, really. You can have the most expensive stuff. Maybe if you had some, you know, something designed for Antarctica. But then, you know, that kind of stuff, you're, it's not really designed to work in yeah, either. So. Yeah, how do you work with that? Oh, and the guys, you know, they're like, I can't feel my toes. I'm like, you might, you might lose toes, you know, because mm-hmm. you have to wear a steel toe boot. Right. So what does that steel toe do in the freaking, you know, middle of winter, negative 20 degrees? Mm. Oh, it's going to freeze your freaking toes off. Right. But yes, that was, that was just a little side tangent because we're talking about cold and I'm just mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, I'm no stranger to cold. I, I can relate. Although I think if you were having negative temperatures, it, it would have, uh, I don't think it would have worked because you guys would have literally froze to death. Well, no, that's just another mindset. It would have worked because I would have done whatever it took to make it work. Like I did what I had to you do f- to, for it to work for the situation that we're in. But if we were in, if it was negative 30, I, w- I would have just found another way to make that heater more efficient. I would have, you know, whatever I'd have had to do, do. because that, that was my That's mindset. True, it's a mindset. Yeah. That was my mindset going into this deal. This is going to work because we're just going to make it work because there is no other option. That's true. No retreat. No retreat. Yeah. Like burn the ships. We sold our land that we were living on. We sold most of our stuff. So, we had kind of created a do or die kind of situation. So, that's a good I mean, point. I understand the point you're making that that cold, that kind of cold is, well, I've never been in that kind of cold. Brutality. I can only imagine. Yeah. So, but I would have found a way because that's just, but you're right. You're right. That's just my brain. You're totally right. There is a way. And I think that way would have been to have built an underground uh, shelter. Yeah, possibly. If you dug out an actual, like, kind of a root cellar situation, right? you could have made it. Yeah. You would have to go subterranean um, because it's the wind that kills you. Uh, negative 10, it actually isn't that bad, negative 10, because it's so cold, it uh, freezes the moisture in the air. It's the wind that just takes the life out of you. So if you went subterranean and figured out a way to have fire and you know make sure you piped out the carbon dioxide from the fire so you wouldn't die of carbon monoxide poisoning of course mm-hmm. it, it and there was native americans in north dakota that did it and they had a i think they had teepees i'm not entirely sure what their situation was but you're totally right that it is the mindset yeah to survive and thrive yeah it's interesting and i, I think the next thing well, there are two things that kind of go hand in hand. One, you can't be a perfectionist if you do it the way that we did mm-hmm. it because, you know, we built all of our own stuff and it just can't, you just can't make it perfect. That's a good point. One, perfection is kind of an ideal, so it's never really attained. It's just something that people push for. I also kind of view it, and I might be wrong at, about this, but I kind of view it as it's a fear of failure more than anything else, because the more you can put off doing something because it's not perfect is really just you saying you're not ready to do it. Yeah. And that goes for anything Yeah, in life. But you just like, for example, we have a, our water heater is wood fired and I built it, Cool. but it's the third one that I built because the first two didn't work for crap. You know, Interesting. but, but the way that I tackle projects is I, 
I get an idea in my head of how it will work, and then I just start working on making it. And the plan evolves yeah. the entire time, and I'll YouTube things, and I'll Google things, and, and the plan always evolves, but I just keep building. And once a project is finished, it might work, it might not work, it might not work as well as I hoped it would work. And then at that point, when it's done, I just make a decision, is this good enough or is it not? And if it's not good enough, I scrap it and I start over. And if it is good enough, then I just continue to use it. And I move on to the next project. And I might even, uh, like for the water, he the water heater, for example, it works. And it works pretty good, but I have other ideas to make it better. Well, we have hot water. So I'm not, I'm not spending my time to make that perfect yet because we've got hot water. So I'm on other projects, projects that need to get completed. Exactly. And then, you know, I will come back at another point in time and I'll redo the hot water heater. Because it's not perfect, but I can't let that stop me. Trip you up. Yeah. Yeah. Like perfection will stop you from moving forward forever if you let it. And people do. People get hung up hung up on it all the time. And I think you can apply that to just a life principle, you know, for anyone listening. Oh, yeah. That you've just got to start the journey. And a lot of people that make websites, for example, you know, we're both webmasters, so we can feel this pain. You try and foresee everything ahead of what if, what if, and if this happens, if that happens, and you just kind of have to toss it aside and make this decision. I'm starting this journey. I don't know what exactly are going to be the obstacles, but if I don't take the first step and start the dang journey, then how am I ever going to get anywhere? And that yeah. is a huge trip up for a lot of people. Right. And when I started that particular journey, like I knew nothing. I had no idea how to do it. You know, you just, wow. you just start learning. You just become a lifelong learner and. Lifelong learning. I love that. And a lot of people just tend to go like, I know it all. I know it all. And it pissed me off because, you know, as a woman on the pipeline, like I was very humbled, like every day. Mm -hmm. I was humbled. I constantly learned something new and technology, you know, would change and there's different types of lines like there's steel pipe and we did flex steel uh, for quite a, a few projects, which takes a completely different method than regular steel and there's poly and so you have all these different types of pipings and you're just constantly in a state of learning mm -hmm. and we'd get guys out there that would literally say, I know it all. I know everything when it comes to pipeline. And I'm yeah. like, my boyfriend, who's been pipelining for most of his adult life, which is, you know, 20 freaking years, he's still learning about pipeline. Yeah. So to have these guys come out and be like, oh, I know it all. And, you know, that ego. Yeah. It just, when you get to that point, you have just shot yourself in the foot because there is no point where you stop learning in any situation. Well, there shouldn't be. I wouldn't think so. But, you know, there's things you can master. Like, you can be a master of something, but I think masters know that they still have to learn to, to keep being a master. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our society has moved from 150 years ago. Everybody was a jack-of-all-trades. Everyone. Yes, because you had to be. You yeah. just had to be. There was no other option. It, it was either that or you allow someone to take care of you. That was, you know. But we've moved down this road of specialization now. And, you know, we're, we're in, 
in the public school system, we go through that system and it's preparing you for college. And then, you know, college prepares you for a very specific type of job. And all through that time, people are asking you, what are you going to be when you grow up? And they expect an answer that is a single thing. You know, I'm going to be yeah. a doctor. I'm going to be, and even anymore, that's not good enough. Like, you're not going to be a doctor. You're going to be a big toe doctor or a kidney doctor <laughs> or a, you know, whatever kind of doctor. Everything is getting specialized. And I think what that creates a mindset where you you think at some point you're done learning because I've, yep. I've learned everything there is to learn about being a big toe doctor. So I'm done learning. And I think that's a bad place to be, in my opinion. I think we should always strive to be learning something. Like I, I, I call myself an opportunistic learner. Like my curiosity drives my learning. But I think that's a big mindset to have is to always be a learner because if you're going to build your own solar system and build your own cabin or water system or septic system or all the different things that you can have if you're going to raise animals if you're going to grow food these all require learning something very few people in today's society know how to do all that stuff you've got to you've got to learn it all and you've got to be you've got to be self-motivated to learn all that stuff. Well, and I actually heard something recently about uh, specialization versus redundancy. I think that's what they called it, redundancy, where specialization has been favored over like cons- comprehensive redundancies in like companies and factories. So you'll have a factory that specializes in this one particular thing. To make it as efficient as possible, but then you're trading off, um, you know, a comprehensive factory that can make multiple things um, that's more resilient to failures. Right. right. Um, and you know, if you do this redundant, uh, comprehensive factory, it takes way longer to produce things. It takes way longer to engineer and design. But mm-hmm. you're way more resilient to just being a, a specialty only factory. Yeah, you're. Uh... You know you can move with the market more easily when something changes. You yeah. Can, and you can apply that to everything. You can sp- certainly apply that to living off grid, you know, that, well, okay. For example, I, I learned how to hunt and clean animals and all that. I don't like it. Like I just, I'm an animal lover. I don't, I, I don't like I hunting. Animals. Yeah. I'm the <laughs> same way. I'm like, well, so I'm fuzzy. a, I'm a softy. <laughs> When it comes to animals and I don't like hunting, yeah. but there's been times while we've lived out here that we were going to be hungry if I didn't go do it. And so wow. I made sure I know how to do it and I do know how to do it. But that's kind of like if the market changes, for example, if for some reason we can't go buy some meat, then I'll have to go hunt some meat. Exactly. But because I'm kind of a jack of all trades, I can move as opposed to somebody who doesn't know, somebody who moves out into the woods and they just think I'm always going to just go to the store and buy my meat. Well, what if, you know, what if some kind of pandemic happens and you go to the store and there's no meat on the shelves? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, what I don't. Happens if that I don't pandemic know. were to hit. Yeah, I don't know how that would happen, but. <laughs> I don't know. I just maybe you know some 
lab in China leaked a, you know, <laughs> pathogen. And but who knows? You know, that'll never happen to us. Right. But <laughs> you know, you, the um, more you learn, the more flexible you are. Well, and I think specialization is favored in thriving economies, thriving societies. Oh yeah. And and then once a disaster hits or something that shakes up our world, we all then become very aware how dangerous specialization really is for our survival. Yeah, it only works under stable conditions. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so what I've done, um, because it is kind of very intimidating to think about all the facets you have to learn to go off grid, I have personally invested in books. And I'm not talking like digital download. I'm talking physical books just in case, because if, you know, we lost power or internet, you lose access to that knowledge. So I have mm-hmm. books on foraging, trapping. I have books on butchering. I have books on identifying edible and medicinal mushrooms, edible and medicinal plants. And I probably need to get more books on like construction and building shelters. You know, that's probably where my library comes a little bit short, but I feel like with these books, I at least have the knowledge to learn because if you're in a survival situation or a shit hit the fan situation and you're now in the middle of the woods and you're like, okay, now I have no idea what I'm doing. At least you have the book to tell you how to, how to do it. Right. Like maybe you haven't got around to learning it just yet, but the information is available if you're in a situation where now I've got to learn it. Well, you've got what you need. Exactly. That's kind of my strategy. And even if you don't want to spend money on books, I bought a binder and a hole puncher and I printed off a crap ton of information off the internet as well. That's like how to skin, how to make tallow, how to make lye, how to make candles. I printed all that off. So where my books kind of fell short, where the gaps were. I just printed off that material and put it in a homesteading binder or a pioneer binder, right. actually. It's Ma- cool. You made your own textbook. I did. Yeah, that's excellent. So that's like a fun project you can do with your family and sit down and just start gathering information. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, when we first started 10 years ago, I did a lot of that myself. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent way to start. Just gathering the knowledge. Mm-hmm. It gives you some comfort knowing that you don't have to learn it all now. And that's where I was starting to feel stressed. So when this whole health crisis started, I was stressing. I'm like, oh, I just don't have the knowledge. You know, if I have to go forage my own food, we're constantly moving. You know, we're in this RV constantly moving. I'm in a new environment. Like how can I learn to be, you know, an herbalist if I'm constantly in a new location? Well, the the solution was a book. Mm -hmm. And so I have books of... Northern America, like Northern North America for the Rockies. And then I have books for the South. And I don't have so much books in the East and West because I haven't been there too much. Yeah. But between those two regions, like I'm probably pretty covered. Yeah. There's a lot of overlap overlap in plants. Yeah. Uh, Well, do you have any um, final mindset ideas for us? Well, I think the last thing uh, is to get into a mindset where you embrace your failure because you You erase your failure, embrace it. 
Oh, embrace your failure. Okay, yeah. you embrace your failure. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because Get, talk about that because I have a I have a problem with that sometimes. <laughs> okay. Well, you will fail. There are things you're going to do that aren't going to work, and you're going to have to start over. I mean, it's just going to happen if you're going to live like this. There's no way around it. You're going to have failures. People most of the time do a couple of different things. First of all, the failure keeps them from acting because they're afraid of it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just, that's like a non-starter. Like you're not, you don't get anywhere with that. And then the other thing is people, they go ahead and move forward. They have a failure and then they beat themselves up about it. Yep. That's me. Okay. Well, (laughs) you, you, I tend to, uh, hold myself a little, uh, a bit of a hostage when it comes to failure. I don't know why. And I, I'm working on it. Like I'm getting way better, especially with the website. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have many failures almost every day. It seems like it's just crazy. And so you just, if you do not adapt in the, uh, the online space, like you will die very quickly. So What's a success? What's a success one day is a failure the next. Right. That's how quickly things change in the online world. It's it's just totally crazy. Yeah. And so the per, the perspective, the healthy perspective, in my opinion, about failure is to embrace it and to see to see the failure as an opportunity to learn something new. Like. Mm-hmm. Um, We've talked about this example while you're, you know, since you're talking about websites is viewing it as a, as a video game. Like when you're a kid and you're playing a video game or adult, adults mm-hmm. play video games, but the object is to get to the end and you can run up against a brick wall over and over and over. And you're stuck in this one place because you can't figure out how to get around it. But every time you, every time you try something new and it doesn't work, you learn something until, yeah. until you figure out how to get to that next level. You know, and that's like when you're uh, battling that super hard boss and you're like, this thing is rigged. I'll never beat right, it. Exactly. And so you try like 50 times and you still fail. And then that 51st time you beat that extremely hard boss because you just so happen to do the right combination. And then like that feeling, that dopamine hit is yeah. like it's so huge. great. <laughs> right. And then you realize it wasn't as hard as you thought. You just weren't doing the right thing. Exactly. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Right. And so if we look at failure as the opportunity to learn something, then it doesn't hit us as hard and we don't have to beat ourselves up. You can almost look forward to it because sometimes you see failure coming. Like sometimes you get a little bit of warning that this looks like this ain't going to work. That's, that's when you can start looking for the learning opportunity in it. And you can almost like have a, uh, an anticipation of the failure that is a positive thing instead of a negative thing. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I like that. I like that idea, that perspective. Yeah. It's all about perspective. Everything is perspective. Yeah. That's why, that's why mindset's so important because just changing your perspective can change how much joy you have in your life and your life can, the actual events in your life don't even have to change. Just the perspective, just how you see it can change and you can be a happier person, have a happier life. Well, and the reality is, is that the only thing that holds us back in life is our mindset. Yeah. And the older I get, like, the more I realize this concept, because, you know, I feel like 
we were taught at a very young age to fit this mold and to do this and to do that and not do this and not do that. Mm-hmm. And you actually have to make this effort to break this mind state to shatter the mindset of I cannot right. and change it to, yes, I can. And I can do anything I put my mind to. It's all about, it all boils down to your mentality, mm-hmm. to your thought patterns. Yeah, that's right. Each, each failure is just, uh, it's just an, a hurdle, an obstacle. That's all it is. It's not, it's, it's just something that's in your way that you've got to get around or over or under or through. It's not finite. Right. It's not like you hit this and, oh, well, it's And that's over. the end. But right. a lot of people do that. A lot of people do that. They have a hard time pivoting. Yeah. It's just a, it's just a challenge. This, I, I heard this. It's just, obstacles are just a challenge to your determination. Mm-hmm. So how determined are you to get where you're trying to go? That's all. Exactly. Yes. It's like a trial. Yeah. It's like an exercise. Like, you know, when you go through basic training in the military, mm-hmm. you're constantly being challenged and you just got to work through it to get to the end result. And those failures that teach you something, if you try something the first time and it works, you don't have a full understanding of why it worked. You got lucky. But if you fail <laughs> 15 times and then you figure out how to make it work, you have a full understanding of why it works now. Because you had yeah. to change, you had to That's pivot true. and change so many times to figure out why this was doing what, you got to the point where now you know why it works. But if you did it the first time and it worked, you got lucky, my friend. Yeah, it's true. So, I mean, that's, we could go on and on all day about mindsets, but those, I think, are the main ones. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, for me, I'd like to just close with, you know, living your dream, no matter how radical it is. And I have a fairly radical vision of uh, what I'd like to do off grid. Yeah. And for me, I don't know. Do you want to hear my radical off grid vision? Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you've talked to me about it at some length, but uh, I would love to hear it. I'm sure everybody out there would love to hear it because I think it's fascinating. So I have this dream to become a professional prospector. And I really want to go out into the mountains and recover gold and gemstones and relics from like the old gold rush days. Yeah. And so I've developed this concept in my mind where I want to build an off-grid RV system and basically like boondock in the woods and like prospect full time year round and move from like location to location just treasure hunting. That is like my ultimate dream. Yeah, that would be awesome. That would be an awesome life. So it's off grid, but in a very um, non-traditional way. So it'd be a, it'd almost be like off grid homesteading or not, not off grid homesteading, RV, off grid RV homesteading. What did you call it? You had a term for it that made a lot of sense. What did you call it uh, the other day? Off, a nomadic off grid. Nomadic off grid. Yeah. An off grid nomad. Yeah. And so that would require, so instead of like planting gardens and raising chickens, it's going to be more so like foraging plants, foraging mushrooms, trapping, hunting, fishing. Yeah. Um, It's just so radical. And I made this decision to be doing this dream by the time I'm 40. And I made this decision when I was 30. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> so I was like, I have 10 years and now I'm 38. I'm turning 38 in a couple weeks. And I'm like, now I have two years. <laughs> I've got two years left. And it's starting to come down the chute. And it's like, am I going to hold myself accountable, you know, to this dream? And, and I think a goal setting and setting a, a time, like I want to be off grid by the time I'm X amount of years old, or I want to be off grid within five years and then just really holding yourself accountable to it. Yeah. Does that sound crazy? No. Am I just totally like lost my mind or is that just like super awesome? No, you. that's awesome. I think it'd be awesome. And so in your mind, you've got a plan, right? That has like steps. I need to do this. I need to do this. And then I can do this. Like you've kind of developed that in your mind, right? Or maybe even put it on paper. I don't know. So it went from a, a very ideological uh, decision, you know, when I was 30, that I wanted to do this. And so in your mind, you have this fantasy. And I think we all right. do this. We romanticize uh, it the first. The fantasy mm -hmm, of finding gold nuggets and sapphires and right. aquamarines and, you know, old coins and gold coins. And I'm in the forest and I'm by a flowing river and, you know, life is just so beautiful. And as I'm developing the plan more and more, it's becoming more of a reality and then I'm just building systems now. Like I'm in system building mode. Like what would I need to do to convert an, a camper into off-grid? Mm -hmm. And what kind of equipment do I need to get the golden gemstones? And how am I going to forage and hunt and fish while I'm doing all this? And I don't think I'm going to be 100%, you know, off-grid eating. A lot of my calories will come from the land. Yeah. So your ideology, as you get closer to the goal, your ideologies start turning into realisms. And as long as you can kind of stay pragmatic about it, like you can make it, you know, you can develop the systems to make it happen. Right. And you weren't, they didn't teach you any of this stuff in high school, right? Or hell no. Like this is all stuff you've had to figure out. First, you got to figure out what you've got to learn. And then you got to figure out. Yep. You Then you've got to learn it. And this is all like self-education. Yes, and uh, a big part of it is um, learning old maps. So I've learned mapping systems and being able to identify um, valuable locations that have a high chance of having minerals and gemstones and relics. Right. Learning history. Orienteering. And, oh, man. Orienteering, which I, I feel orienteering is a lot of hands-on. Yeah. So... I, I think there's three phases to like going off grid or doing like a radical idea. And that is the first phase of ideology and the second phase of like systematic planning. And then the third phase is just going for it. Yeah. And each phase is like a shock to the system. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've got a perfect example of that. So like where we used to live, we were trying to go off grid, but we never could do it because the the house that we had was, I mean, it was fully set up. So yeah. It, it, it's hard not to use those conveniences when they're just so easy to use right there. Anyway, so I was learning all exactly. these. I was learning all these bushcraft skills, right? Because we were preparing to make this move. And I had watched dozens of videos and read dozens of articles and books about how to how to build a fire when all your wood is wet, right? Like a survival fire kind of thing. Mm, yes. And so... I thought I knew how to do that. 
Well, then we moved out here and everything is wet and I, we've got to have a fire because we're in a situation where we can't even eat unless I can build a fire. And I realized, yeah, I realized real quick, I had never gone out and done what I had learned. And so the first day, the first day of trying to build a fire was like all day trying to build a fire. One, just to get a fire going was like a day because I had never gone out and practiced what I had learned and I thought I knew it. You know, so that's kind of like your third, your third phase is actually getting out there and doing it. And now I can build a fire in the middle of the rain. It doesn't even matter. You know, I, wow, that's a huge skill to have. And you wrote an article about that, didn't you? Uh, on your website? I actually, it's I on like the you YouTube channel. About it's on the YouTube channel. YouTube channel, that's where I saw yeah. it. Okay. And that's what, the Off-Grid Maker? Is that off-grid, your YouTube channel? Yeah, Off-Grid Maker is the YouTube channel. So, yeah. Sweet. It's just a complimentary to the website. Just like you, you've got your Maximum Off-Grid website plus the Maximum Off-Grid YouTube channel, and they just complement each other. They do. And I haven't, I wish I had invested more time in the YouTube over the years, but you know, that's neither here nor there. That's a failure that I can uh, easily fix. Yeah. Through motivation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't yeah. look back. You can only look forward. That's right. Well, and then, you know, I haven't put any YouTube videos out in a while and I hadn't even posted anything on the website in a while either, but we decided to do this podcast. And so, you know, you only have so much time Which in is a, a day. risk as well. Oh, and I mean, this is a risk as well. So we're taking a risk here. Right. And you just got to go for it. Yeah. And we didn't know anything Uh, about podcasting before we started, or at least I didn't. No, it wasn't really even on my radar at all until like you kind of mentioned it to, you mentioned it to me several months back and I was like, yeah, yeah, podcast and kind of went about my day and then, but it sank in and I'm like, you know what? Let's do it. Let's do this podcast. Right. And here we are. And here we Taking are. Taking the risk of our time and our efforts mm-hmm. to launch something new. Yeah. Um, well, on that note, I think we'll wrap up for today. Um, I would like to invite you all to check out our home base websites. Cyrus's website is offgridmaker.com and my website is maximumoffgrid.com. And between both of the websites, you could go off grid. You would not have to read anything else yeah, because sure. we have created so much content that you should be able to get everything you need to at least have basic off-grid systems. Yeah, for sure. So what are we covering next week? We are going into um, the food shortage situation, the supposed food shortage situation. It doesn't appear to be a food shortage when I go into the store, but everyone's talking about it. So I feel like we should address uh, some food autonomy and what's going on in our in our world when it comes to food. Yeah, there's a reason why the the first thing listed when we talk about this website of how you get to liberty is self-sufficiency. That's the first yes. step. And if you're not uh, self-sufficient with your food, then you are very vulnerable. And so we're going to talk about that next week. Yep. And our first episode uh, was a really interesting conversation about the Chaz Chop in Seattle. So you might want to check that out if you are interested in that. We go into the concept of anarchy as well, which is basically a a huge misconception. So Mm -hmm. uh, check that episode out too. And uh, we will see you or hear from you. Oh, that reminds me. So uh, 
We are open to your input. Please email us at theoffgridoutpost at gmail.com with any questions or comments or agreements or disagreements. We like disagreements, too. So, Right on. <laughs> you bet. We'd love to hear from you. Well, tune in next time and have a wonderful day. All right. Talk to you all later. Thanks for listening to the Off-Grid Outpost podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to the show and get new episodes as soon as they're released.